Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Graham Bolton here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Good to have you here with us today. Hope you're having a great day, and I really do appreciate you hanging out with us today. We've got a great guest for you. Uh, really excited about this one. Before we get there, let me remind you that our new book, The Successful Speaker, Five Steps for Booking Gigs, Getting Paid, and Building Your Platform, comes out February 18th, and uh, we've put together a lot of pre-order bonuses that are going to be in a uh, special deal for you. You can get all of that by pre-ordering the book and going over to thespeakerlab.com slash book. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash book. All the pre-order bundles and bonuses are going to be there, including uh, if you pre-order the book, we're going to give you the audio book for free. So all you got to do is order the, uh, uh, the, the hardcover or the Kindle version, and we'll, uh, we'll send you the audio book for free. So again, all the details are over at thespeakerlab.com slash book, thespeakerlab.com slash book. All right, so let's get to today's guest. Today, we're going to be talking with Ryan Holiday. Ryan, uh, maybe a name that's familiar to you as a, as a successful author. The guy does a lot of speaking as well. So we talk about how speaking and being an author fit together. We also talk about his process for uh, kind of writing and developing a talk, how he thinks of himself as rather as being a writer who speaks or a speaker who writes. We also talk about how he has been able to speak to some big audiences, how he thinks about like the flow state of, of that and how he gets into the zone, so to speak, before speaking, kind of what that process looks like for him. So this is a really wide ranging conversation. Really enjoyed this one. A lot that you're going to learn, a lot you're going to take away from it. Also, Ryan has a new book called Stillness is the Key that we talked a little bit about uh, that I'd highly encourage you to, uh, to check out and pick up. So let's jump right into this conversation with Ryan Holiday. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, joined by Ryan Holiday, who's a uh, successful author and speaker, entrepreneur, all-around great guy. You may have heard of him from The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, his newest book, Stillness is the Key. Got kind of a theme there that something is the something, something is the something. I'm assuming there's a method to the madness there? Always, yeah. Okay. No, I mean, right. if there's not, it means you're just choosing titles randomly, which is not a good thing because it's probably the most important decision you'll make with the book. All right. So I got several questions for you all around speaking and how speaking fits into things, but I'm curious. Okay. Outside looking in, it seems like you are more known as an author than a speaker. How do you perceive yourself? How do you want the business to look? Are you more of an author who happens to speak or are you more of a speaker who happens to write? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think in this space, like I would venture to guess that the majority of nonfiction authors, at least in the sort of advice how-to space, make more money speaking than writing. Yeah, I have been fortunate in that my, my books have sold quite well. I, I think when, when people hear that, they go, oh, it must be because speaking is quite lucrative. Being a little blunt, I think it's because most people's books don't sell, right? The, yeah. the, book, the books were never really intended to be books. The books are like advertisements for a keynote, which is good as far as it goes. But I sort of more identify as a writer, as someone who makes books. I, I love books. 
I'm not a big fan of the idea of a book as a business card. I, I think there are easier and better things to do with your time than to spend a year of your life making something. And, and I, I just, I, you know, I sort of so deeply believe in books as a medium. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always a little bit turned off when it's, when people sort of use them so transactionally. So I guess I identify as a writer, but I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of speaking and I, I see it as kind of part of the job. And I was actually, I was talking to Cal Newport yesterday. He was asking me about like why I did as much speaking as I did. And I said, look, like you have a day job as a college professor. Right, so right. Like that pays for your health insurance and pays the mortgage on your house and whatever. And that that's what allows you to then spend two or three years like with a big idea, turning it into a book. And I sort of see books that way. And so for me, speaking is is like the thing that then allows me to write about what I really want to write about because I have this sort of backbone of speaking that is lucrative and dependable, but it's, I'm not writing to get talks. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Do you find that the, the speaking is almost like field research for the book? A little bit. I tend to write first and speak second. So I don't like, I'm not necessarily testing ideas on stage, although I occasionally do that. For me, it's more speaking is an introduction or an entree point into different audiences or different groups. So like I know that the speaking I've done to like sports teams has helped the book spread through professional sports or so that's one of the things I think about when I'm looking at talks is like maybe the offer is not as high as it normally would be. I don't have many inroads into this group. And so for me the like primarily books are what I'm trying to do. And so if you tell me that I'm going on the road to sort of tour in support of a book in the way that a band goes on the right. road to support an album, then I see that as part of the job. Yeah. I remember Tim Sanders said that. He said, I, I basically, I think of it like a band that I write a book every two years or so in the same way that a band might put out an album every other year. And then I tour that material yeah. to keep that material uh, relevant. And so it sounds like for you, the passion for you is, is books. And so it sounds like almost opposite of what some speakers may do in terms of most speakers may, I write a book in order to book more gigs, but it sounds yes. like for you in some ways, I speak so that I can spread the book idea. Yeah. And look, I think a big distinction, uh, a big contributor to that is sort of like introvert, extrovert. Yeah. So some people are like extroverts. I love being in front of an audience. I love the crowd. I want to be up there entertaining. And then they're like, okay, so what's a way to do that? Books are a, a means to sort of build the credibility, the expertise, or, you know, sort of generate the leads to go do speaking. I came at it from a different standpoint, which is that Actually, I think I got my first speaking agent from like the press release about my first book coming out because it had been a little controversial. But it, it's like, I came to the, like, I'm a person who thinks through writing. Writing is the medium to which I think I express myself best. And since I've written about sort of interesting ideas or ideas that are resonating in the culture, people come to you and say, hey, could you come present on this idea to our audience? Yeah. And so it, it's more like, in the same way that some of those speakers have had to learn how to write, I had to learn how to go talk in front of an audience because that's not sort of naturally what I would want to do or what I feel like my my toolkit previously would have allowed me to do. Do you find yourself as much more of an introvert who becomes yeah. more of an extrovert on stage? 
I mean, I, I think I'm good at being on stage and, and I think I can do it. I just find like, you know, they say it was sort of one of the tests of introvert, extrovert is like, do you get energy from right. being around people or not? I'm always very drained when I come off the road. It's and, emotionally, mentally draining. It's tiring. Yeah. Yeah. And so like the, the other thing for me is like uh, a lot of my friends have conferences or there's conferences out there. Like, unless I'm being paid to speak, I almost never want to go to it. Like, this is kind of how I know. It's like, if you're like, hey, like someone just sent me an invite for this amazing conference in like Costa Rica in a treehouse or something. And it looked really, and it was like, I'm not going to that. Like, uh, that doesn't sound fun. That doesn't sound fun to me. To another person, this would have sounded, to me, I'm like, that's taking me away from my life. That's forcing me to be around other people. So I, I definitely also, I see speaking as part of it again, a part of a job, it's a business, but, and I can do it. It's not like I'm racked with stage fright or, a, you know, it's just not what I would prefer to be doing. And, and kind of having that is helpful because then you're like, oh, this is why I'm charging. You know what I mean? Right, right. If you're like, I wouldn't do it for free. So um, that, that's why I charge for it. Yeah. One of the things I like to say is that you don't pay me to speak. You're paying me to leave my family. And that's expensive mm -hmm. because totally. it is like the, the, the one hour you're on stage is really fun, but everything outside of that can be very non-glamorous and non-sexy and very tiring and exhausting. And so the reason I ask about the introvert extrovert, I'm pretty introverted myself. Uh, and I find most speakers I talk to are the same that, yeah. that it, we assume because you're on stage, you're the life of the party. And the reality is like off stage, I'm pretty boring and I really don't want to talk with many people and not because I'm mean or rude. I just, I'd rather go back to my room and I'm a hundred percent good with that. Yeah. Look, I think the big part of that is what it takes to decide to be really good at something to like figure out a space or a niche or an industry or a set of ideas. Or in my case, like whatever part of me says like ancient philosophy, I love that. That's right. what I want to get really interested in. That is not, that tends not to be a very extroverted, you know, like if you're sort of naturally gregarious, naturally good in front of an audience, you can naturally entertain people. You're not usually also the kind of person that wants to nerd out for years and years about an obscure topic and qualifies you to be a speaker on said topic. So it's a it's kind of a catch-22. So since your primary, I guess, mode is writing for uh, the form of a book, how do you approach writing for a speech differently? Or do you, are they the same? Um, they're not the same, but, you know, having, uh, this is, uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of, my, I believe, my 10th book now, and they're on kind of a diverse set of topics, but each one of them is, is like, how I tend to write is I have a big idea, which I then break down and illustrate with stories that sort of illustrate the principles in that idea. So this lends itself pretty well to speaking because I'm able to just sort of give my top level argument. And then it's almost like a five paragraph essay, right? It's like, here's my introduction. And then I'm going to tell you three stories. And then I'm going to give you a conclusion. And so I'm able to kind of mix and match. So like when I do a talk, it's usually like, okay, what book did you come to me through? What is your organization going through? What's the theme of your event or your priorities for the year? And what are like four or five stories I can break out from the books or, or just four or five stories that I have from other things that I haven't used in the books, or maybe I will in the future that I can sort of do. So, so my talks tend to be pretty modular and, and, uh, and different, which, which I also like because it prevents me from getting bored, right. just sort of delivering the same thing over and over again. Yeah, it's possible to 
to deliver a, a great talk, but be on autopilot and just be bored personally. And so it has yeah. to keep it interesting for you. Because when you're writing a talk and you're staring at a blank screen, you're making an educated guess on what you think will work in front of an audience, but you don't necessarily know until you get up on stage. And I, yeah. I wrote this story and I think it's funny or I think it's poignant or I think it's inspirational or I think it's whatever, but I don't know until I see that live reaction. So is there versus like whenever you're writing the exact same story for a book, I may never actually see the reader's response to it other than anecdotally what I'm hear. So is there any yeah. way that you, you think about that? Yeah. So that's sort of not been my experience. So I don't, I almost never am starting with a blank presentation. It's usually like, okay, I know from the books and I know from articles that I've written, what stories tend to resonate with an audience because yeah. I hear from people about them. And so like, let's say I was giving a talk in, in uh, Brazil in a week and a half. So I'll, uh, you know, sometime in the next week, I'll sort of re- review the brief, look up who's talking, you know, who wants me to do it. And then I'll pick sort of a similar talk I've gotten. I'll just recreate that keynote. And then I'll plug and play different stories that I think will work with that specific audience. Right. And so almost, it's very rare that I totally out on a ledge because I've either written about it in an article, I've either written about it in one of my books, or I've talked about it on podcasts or in conversations. So I'm always testing material that way. So I'm very rarely getting up on stage, you know, sort of just like uh, winging totally unproven sure. material. How often are you speaking today? And who are you typically speaking to? What's the, what's the ideal audience for you? I would say it's probably three or four times a month that I'm speaking. I just, so for, and I think in October, because I did the, the launch of, of Stillness, I think I did 21 talks in October. So that Dang. was quite a lot or, or, or 20 talks in October. It, it was a lot. I think I did four in one day, one of the days, but um, <laughs> it's pretty regular. So it's, I'm home now for like almost two weeks and then I go and then I'm back. Um, yeah. What's been weird for me is just how diverse the audiences are. So it's like, you know, I, I was just in uh, London. I talked to this sort of private group that Gary Vaynerchuk had. And then the, the week before that, I'd done a talk in Budapest for the Department of Education. And then Bucharest, I did a marketing conference, you know, about how you make work that lasts. So like it can be all over the place. And then I I got an inquiry today from, you know, a branch of the armed services. So my audience tends to be pretty diverse, but I I tend to find that the audience is like elite performers of some kind. So Mm -hmm. it's special forces or it's an NBA team or it's sales executives or it's a hedge fund offsite retreat. It's people who are doing something at a, at a really high level uh, almost always. Now for people who regularly listen to the show, one of the big pieces of advice we, we always give is to not try to be all things to all people and not try to speak to all these different types of audiences. So for some people, everything you just described of all those different audiences are like, that sounds awesome. And some yeah. people are like, wait a minute, how does that work? So yeah. can you speak to that for how you, you try to try to appeal to a significant market, but you don't try to be all things for all people? Yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm not really trying to be anything for anyone. I'm, I'm trying to write books that I think will deliver value yeah. to people who are doing things in the real world. So, and most of my writing tends to be influenced by ancient philosophy. So I'm taking sort of ancient wisdom and applying it to modern life. And, and what will happen is that somebody, whether it's a general or a CEO or a director of HR will read the book and go, hey, these lessons would be really important for the people in our audience. And then they, they bring me in. So I'm not, 
not really marketing myself as a speaker. I'm, yeah. I market myself primarily as an author. And because that reach has been pretty extensive, it manages to touch a lot of different niches. Yeah. And I think a, a good distinction there is that a lot of the, my guess is a lot of the, the, the business that you have today is from inbound inquiries. Oh, so totally. it's not, I'm trying to outbound tell that I'm everybody for everything, but really it's, it's kind of some random things. And it also just shows the breadth of, of the audience that you have reached with your work who now say, Hey, the thing I just read, I got a team, you know, back at the office or back, whatever that I need you to come share that exact same message with, but it may be diverse because of the, you know, the diverseness of the people that read your books. Yeah. And, and I think that's what I've always found to be short-sighted about the sort of book as business card mentality, which is like, you're appealing to a very small market. Like, pe- like people who will read, like, like what I, the benefit of the best marketing I've done for my speaking is write books that sell lots of copies, yeah. right? Like that, that, that are, are actually good. You know, like there's certainly, uh, and I certainly know how I could do it, come up with, it's like, hey, there's lots of leadership talks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of phone in a book about leadership. Or like, hey, like, look, the, the two of the most, my, my first two books were marketing books, and I get a lot of speaking out of those. I could, even though I don't have that much to say about marketing anymore, I could come up with book topics about those that would probably get me gigs. Yeah. But in the, in the, that would only work in the short term, and it'd put you on a bit of a treadmill. I think writing books that have lasted and that have continued to sell sort of passively without me having to, to like hustle for them. Yeah. Great. Cause I, I, yeah, I have a, a, I have my, my flow of inbound inquiries yeah. and because the books are somewhat timeless, it doesn't matter that the book, the books came out six or seven years ago in some cases. So it sounds like for you, you start with books, you're writing, and then at some point, people are like, hey, I read that this was really good. Do you speak? How did speaking start to evolve to become the piece that it is today? I started speaking in, I believe, 2012. I think my first talk was a music conference. And then the next one I did was uh, the Next Web in, in Sao Paulo. They were doing their first one in Sao Paulo. So those were like my first two, two audiences, I think. And then it was probably started at, at once a month and then maybe it was like twice a month. And then, you know, now it's probably three, four times a month, sometimes more, but it was primarily inbound and usually at sort of high level groups. So it's not, you know, enormous audiences, but it's people who are, who can pay good fees because there is a high chance of ROI based on, you know, the sort of combined it's funny, like you'll get an, an offer to be like, hey, you know, this is an audience. It's like a thousand people, but we don't have much of a budget. And then you'll be like, you'll get one and it'll be like, hey, this is a hedge fund offsite for six people and we can pay your full fee, right? Like, <laughs> be, because it just depends on what the audience is likely to be able to do with what you're talking about. And so I think I've been fortunate in that my books have sort of skewed, although my books have sold well, but they, they, I would say they're disproportionately sort of read by sort of like C-suite type folks, you know, like professional sports coaches. That's like a great niche to be in in that like if they want to have a speaker, they're, they're not like budget constrained, right, right. you know, so it's been cool. Was there any intentionality when writing the books of thinking about how can this lead to speaking or it sounds, it sounds like my impression is like speaking yeah. has just kind of been, it's been a natural byproduct of writing really quality books. I don't know if it's just a natural byproduct, but I do think 
I do think like writing a really great book or making a really great album or a movie, it's, it's really hard in and of itself. So if you're trying to introduce too many other variables, like, you know, how is this going to get me speaking or is this going to raise my consulting rate? Yeah, I think you're, you're, you might be trying to juggle more than you can reasonably get. So I don't think about it that way, but, but what I do try to do with each one of my books is really address a specific problem that I think is universal and likely perennial. So, you know, I, I, one of the, and you, I think you said you saw me talk it uh, when I was talking about my book, Perennial. I joke like, you know, Guy Kawasaki wrote a book called Enchantment, which is all about sort of, you know, winning the hearts and minds of customers. And then he also wrote a book about Google Plus, you know, and, <laughs> and, and so like, which one is going to continue to generate speaking over the long term? The answer to that question is also the same, which one is going to continue to sell more books over the long term. So right. I, I kind of think if you're doing the book right and you're thinking about it right, it will put you in a position to succeed as a speaker. And if you make bad decisions for the book, it will likely preclude it being a successful generator of, of speaking opportunities. Has there been much intentionality on the speaking side as far as I, I wrote those first couple of books, I started to get a couple of inquiries, I get up on stage, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy yeah. it. It's fun. It's a good way to help people. But it's also a good way, like you said, to it's my day job. It helps give me some of the freedom and flexibility to write books and to just have the, the lifestyle that I want. Is there any, especially early on, was there intentionality of like, I need to be doing more of this? Or is it always just kind of, I keep writing books, I, I keep getting speaking gigs, and it's just kind of like a, a snowball effect. I mean, I think I've started to get more in, intentional about it. I've, I've sort of been steadily raising the rate. I've been saying no to stuff. I've been, I've been also, you know, sort of investing more in video. Uh, we found that, that I have a thing called Daily Stoke. We found video has been a nice driver and, and it's certainly sort of expanded reach in a lot of ways. So in 2018 and then 2019, I did two book tours. I did one for my book Conspiracy and then I did one for Stillness. Uh, it was, it, they were in back-to-back -back years, but one was at the beginning and one was at the end of the year. So it was almost two years apart. What I found is that doing like doing the t like 20 or so talks in, in one month that I think for Conspiracy, I did like, you know, 15 over like five weeks or something. It like one of the hard things about speaking, if you're deciding like, Hey, I'm not going to speak for free and I'm going to like sort of have a, a pretty, you know, sort of hefty rate is that it's hard to get reps, you know, like stand up yeah. comics get on stage all the time. And it's sort of an ex like when they go uh, on stage at Caroline's for 15 minutes in, in New York City, that's not reducing what they can command on the market where with speaking, it's like if you're going around doing a lot of free gigs, or you're going around, you know, talking at sort of lower end things, it does impact where you sit. And so it's, it's hard, it's hard to get reps. And so I found like doing these 20 talks, like that might've been how many talks I did in 2013 or yeah. in 2014. So I got a year's practice in one month. Yeah. And so, so I have been in, in, intentional about sort of like elevating my game, so to speak, and trying to just see it as a, like, I'm very intentional about getting better as a writer and I was more content to wing it as a speaker. And I feel like I've invested in getting a little bit better as a speaker. You live in Austin now. You yeah. uh, used to live in California. 
part of, um, it kind of reminded like when you're talking about, you know, uh, comedians that are going to Caroline's, there's a lot of comedians that will move to New York because there's enough opportunities and reps there. Sure. Uh, and it's a lot easier to, yeah, I can justify, you know, traveling by train, you know, 20 minutes to go do 15 minutes versus like, sure. if I live in St. Louis, am I going to fly to do 15 minutes at Caroline's? Probably not. Right. Um, is that any, any of the reason that you move or how much have, has yeah. I guess, ge geographical location made a difference for your speaking business? Well, speaking is interesting because I've lived in Los Angeles. I've lived in New York, lived in New Orleans. I've lived a, a number of different places. Speaking, it's like living in New York might have some advantages in the New York market, but I think it has a huge disadvantage and it's actually really hard to fly out of New York takes forever to get to the airport. Yeah. You know, you're, you're basically, you know, it's hard to get, you know, outside of the Eastern seaboard. One of the things I really like about Austin is that it's basically three hours to anywhere in like the furthest points of the U S yeah. and sometimes just an hour or two to other cities. So I find that I can work pretty regularly and not disrupt my life too much. So I wouldn't say that moving to Austin was that related to my speaking thing, but I would yeah. say that like, when we decided we, we live, a, a, we have a farm outside uh, Austin that we spend a, a good chunk of time on. Like when we were looking at property, we were like, what is our proximity to the airport? So it's like, if you went an hour this direction, you know, maybe that's at, now it's an hour and a half to the airport. Yeah. But if, if we move this direction, it's only 25 minutes to the airport. So we, we pick somewhere that gives like, I can breeze in and out of Austin. You know, I can get, I can get there 45 minutes to an hour before my flight takes off and be fine, yep. you know, in Manhattan, that's not happening. And so the breeze of travel is definitely something I, I would think about. Yeah, the logistics of travel definitely make a difference. But even I would assume, I mean, Austin is, a, is a, obviously a major tech hub. And so there's a lot of things that are coming, events and conferences, gatherings that are coming to town that sure. make it a lot, you know, a lot more feasible for you to say, sure, I'll drive an hour into town to do something and I'll be, I'll be able to, like, we always think about it like the number of sleeps I'm gone. Yeah, you sure. know, So like, yeah, I'm a lot more likely to do something where I'm gone zero sleeps. And it makes it a little bit easier to, again, like you mentioned, get some of those reps in. Yeah, I mean, now I've got two young kids now. And so now I think about like sort of how many how many bedtimes am I missing? Exactly. And so Austin is, Austin, what I like about Austin is it's pretty good now, but it's clearly getting better. Like when I moved here in 2013, there wasn't a Heathrow flight. Now there's a Heathrow flight every day and a Frankfurt flight. So like, you know, I was able to, I had a gig in, in London. I flew out Monday night. So I basically didn't miss a, really miss a bedtime. And then I was home by like midnight on Wednesday. So I was, and like, I couldn't have done that from Los Angeles. I, it might've been slightly easier from New York, but like in, in other ways, it would have been more difficult. So, so I think having somewhere that's logistically central, if you do speaking is great. These are things, I think you're just optimizing at the margins, but they, yeah. they are helpful. Yeah, very much so. Let's talk about the newest book, uh, Stillness is the Key. Give us the premise of what the book's about. Yeah, the, the premise is like when I think about all my best work, all the best work that I've done, whether it's, you know, a moment on stage or whether it's a book I was writing or just, you know, a moment of happiness, at the core of that is some kind of stillness. And I, I bet, I, you know, I've listened to the show a bunch of times. You, get, you don't talk too much about sort of like, like, getting in that flow state on stage, you know, you tend more to talk about sort of the logistics and the business side of things, but there is something really magical about when you lock into whatever you're doing. And that, yeah. to me, that's like, that is a fleetingly rare state, but it, it sort of unifies, you know, music, speaking, writing, 
coding, all the sort of creative professions have that in common. And so the idea is like, how does one cultivate that in their life? How do you access it? How can you have it be more than just a, a random occurrence? And uh, so it's sort of about ancient strategies for accessing what I think is one of the more powerful forces on the planet. And so it seems like, you know, for most, most speakers are very, you know, motivated, driven, entrepreneurial type A type personalities. And so we tend to think a lot about, you know, accomplishing, gaining, achieving, striving, building, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so stillness and get, getting into more of the, the flow state almost feels like the antithesis of what a lot of speakers may be trying to achieve and accomplish. Yet it may actually be more productive for them. So how do you find the balance of, yes, I want to accomplish. Yes, I want to achieve. Yes, I want to help as many people as possible. But I also recognize one of the best things I can do is, is perhaps nothing. And, and I'm really not talking about doing nothing, but, but I am, I'll give you an example. Like one of the reasons I stopped using Facebook was that it was making it harder for me to be content and happy with my own life because I was comparing myself against the very selective information that other people, including other speakers that I know, were deciding to post, right? And like, that's one of my favorite things about speaking is just how widely accepted complete dishonesty about rape <laughs> seems to be. My agent tells me this story. He's like, he's like, I once booked two speakers on the same event, and they were flying back on a plane together. And they both called me after to complain that the other person had gotten paid more than they had, you know? And I think that encapsulates uh, some sort of self-induced misery that is endemic to this profession, right? And it's true for authors too, and I'm sure it's true for musicians and screenwriters and whatever, which is like, instead of focusing on the wonderfulness of your own career and what you have and how, how much you would have killed to have to be exactly where you are now just a few years ago, it's very easy to be focused on, you know, what other people are doing to go, hey, I'm, I'm only getting paid X, but my, you know, my dream is to be paid 5X, right? Like, I, I think like speaking in front of an audience is, this is, goes to what I was saying earlier, it's already really hard. The idea that you can do it while 10% of your mind is brooding about some other thing, you know, is like, to me, a kind of really arrogant. So I think when I'm talking about stillness, I'm also just talking about getting to a place where you have some peace or satisfaction. Being content with what you have does not mean you're not continuing to try and you're not grateful if you get more. But the idea of like, I'm trying very intentionally now to sort of do all the work that I do from a place of fullness rather than a place of like, I need this. Or if I don't get what I want, I'll be upset or I'll hold it against someone. So, yeah. you know, I think, I think that's all, uh, you know, important. To that point, what does your preparation process look like? And that can be in the form of, like you mentioned, you know, you're speaking in a couple of weeks in Brazil. And so what you're doing today to prepare for that, but also you're getting ready to go on stage, you're backstage, you're in the hotel room leading up to that. What are you doing to lock in to reach that flow state? So whenever you walk on stage, regardless of what's going on, uh, yeah. outside of that room that you're, I'm all in, I'm fully present, I'm dialed in, and I'm going to give my absolute best for this audience. Yeah, no, and I think this is a really important part and probably a part not talked about enough. I think like in the speaking industry, we tend to talk about size of crowds, we talk about fee, but we don't really talk about like delivering a great show or like yeah. doing a great job. And, and so I'm a big believer of like, I like to get there the night before, I get sleep, I usually... I usually run or swim beforehand. I try to do some form of strenuous exercise 
I try not to eat a lot right before a talk. One of the things I'm constantly in a sort of a battle about through my reps, which is actually a really important reason I think to have reps, is like I'm just so burnt out on like, you know, they're like, hey, uh, okay, so the talk is at nine. So we'd like Ryan to get there at 6.15, you know, or whatever. Like, they're like, okay, we're going to go on at nine, even though they it never goes at nine. It's always right. late, right? right, right. And, and then we need an hour and a half for sound check. And then we need, you know, like 30 minutes for you to walk from the door up one flight of stairs to the venue. And then, uh, you know, it's, it's a 15 minute car ride from, you know, your hotel to the venue. So let's budget 45 minutes for that. And then, you know, the next thing you know, you, you get there, you've done all this work to get in the right headspace. Yeah. And then they're like, please hang out in this room with total strangers for uh, an hour and a half. You know, <laughs> I had this really strange, but amazing opportunity this year. I spoke. So the NFL uh, sponsored a Ted talk for the head coaches, GMs and owners of the NFL teams in, in Arizona. They do this meeting every year. This is the first time, but so Ted put on a private talk inside uh, the thing. And so I was the last speaker because my books had, had had some level of recognition inside the NFL. And so, you know, they're like, okay, you know, uh, the, the event starts at, you know, like two. And then, so Ryan, you'll probably, you know, go on it at say like four or something. And they're like, here's your seat right in the front row. And I was like, I'm not sitting here for the next two hours. Like, <laughs> I can't think of literally a worse way to warm up for a talk than to sit on your hands watching other people do their, you know, I was like, yeah. we got to find some, and we had to like reconfigure it. So like I had, and I just like paced outside in the lobby yeah. listening to music because like, that's how, like, I tend to like to listen to music before I go on. They were like, well, we really need it. I was like, look, if you make me do this, I promise you, I will have to get up and go to the bathroom at least 15 times in two hours. Like I get nervous, I have to pee, I have to pee. Like it, I will be so disruptive and I will deliver a less good talk if you if you insist on this. And they were like, fine. And actually my talk in, in Budapest, I did the same thing. It was like, I went on at like four and the event started at nine. And they were like, what time do you want the car to pick you up? And it was like, 350 you know like i like i want to go like directly from the car into this so so that's a big part of my routine is just like making sure there's as little like bullshit uh beforehand as possible because i want to do a good job and i, I want to be in the right headspace i think the longer you speak the, some audiences are more high stakes than others more events are more high stakes so you mentioned yes. like an NFL one, speaking to every coach and GM, like that's a, that's a big deal, right? Yes. Versus like, can you come speak to the, you know, this local uh, chamber of commerce, you know, type thing. Sure, sure. It's like still important, but may not feel like, whoo, man, the butterflies are really churning on this one versus that. Yeah. One. Yeah. So sure. is there anything that you do to, again, like kind of get yourself on that, like into that flow state that, you know what, regardless of the audience, regardless of the stakes, this audience that I'm speaking to right now matter just as much as any of the others. Yeah, I, that's one of the reasons I don't want to be at the event. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I want to see it as like, I, like I'll hang out at the event after. I, I love that. Yeah. I don't want to watch the other speakers. I don't want to mingle. I don't want to eat at the crappy, you know, continental breakfast. Like, I, I want to treat this like a performance and I'm going up to do something, not like, hey, I was a member of the audience up until eight seconds ago, exactly the same as everyone else here. And now, by the way, I'm supposed to perform in front yeah. of all of you. You know, I think there's even a little bit to be said for like kind of the mystery of it and, yeah. and like just 
keeping somewhat of it afterwards. I think it's all, all good. But like beforehand, you, I always love you watch a speaker go up on stage and they still have like their name tag on or still wearing the name badge. I'm like, dude, like first off, you didn't need to ever have that on. But second, these are subtle things that I think contribute to whether you come off as an expert or not. Yeah. And wearing the same, hello, my name is Steve, as everyone else is not contributing that, to that. Right, right. Yeah, the the difference in interacting with people before you speak and after after you speak is just night and day. And before, it's so awkward. Who are you again? What do you do? Yeah, Where, oh, right. you speak? That's cool. I speak too. It's like, right. okay. <laughs> but sure. so awkward and clunky. But after you speak, like, okay, all the rapport has been built already. You saw that thing I just did up on stage. And so there's a, that immediate connection with the audience. Yeah, no, I think sometimes you'll talk to people and they, they think like the last keynote spot is the best one. I actually like if it's like a couple day event and I'm and I have to be there for the event itself, I actually think the early slots are best. Yeah. Because if you really are trying to network or meet people, the earlier you speak in the series, the better because now when you are at the buffet for lunch or whatever it is, you're not like, oh, where should I sit? It's like you're part of the cool kids already. Yep. Yep. For sure. Ryan, this has been very insightful. Really appreciate you taking the time. If people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, and uh, as well as the new book, where can we go? Yeah. So you can go to ryanholiday.net. That's my site. Um, Daily Stoic is sort of the one stoic meditation thing a day. And then I'm at Ryan Holiday and at Daily Stoic on, I think, all the platforms. So, uh, and it's uh, .net? .net for me and .com for Daily Stoic. Okay. And the... .net, could you get the .com for your name? There's another Ryan Holiday. He's like a Christian musician or something. Okay. And so every, much anymore, because I think like our sort of notoriety flip, but I remember early on in my career, I'd get, you know, these emails from like 12-year-old girls who were like, hey, you performed at my, you know, my Catholic <laughs> high school yesterday. Like, thank you. And I'm, I'm not even going to reply to tell you you have the wrong person. There's a, uh, a Grant Baldwin videographer, filmmaker in the like food space. So I get a few, right. of, his, I get a few of his sure. speaking gigs from time to time. Sure. I have the Gmail address. I have Ryan Holiday Gmail, which really, okay. really is what matters. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Thanks for the time, man. We enjoyed it. Appreciate it. All right, there you go, my friends. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ryan Holiday. Again, I'd encourage you to pick up his latest book, Stillness is the Key, sold at uh, bookstores everywhere. So make sure you uh, you check that out. Also, again, don't forget to check out uh, our latest book coming out in just a few weeks. You can find that over at the speakerlab.com slash book. Again, the speakerlab.com slash book. Again, the book title is The Successful Speaker, Five Steps for Booking Gigs, Getting Paid, and Building Your Platforms. We're going to walk through in depth our five-step process for finding and booking gigs. It is everything we could possibly think of 288 pages of goodness there about how to find and book gigs. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. I think you're going to get a lot from it. It's an easy read, fun read, lots of great stories there behind the scenes stuff. So I definitely encourage you to pick that up, speakerlab.com slash book. And again, if you pre-order the book, we've got a lot of bonuses and bundles that you can pick up as well. Uh, again, check that out over the speakerlab.com slash book. Thanks for hanging out with us, my friend. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome. <laughs>